message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. If you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 today. Hard to believe we're already drawing close to the to the end of this letter. After uh, next week, we'll complete it next week. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to just say a, a brief word of introduction. But I found I was talking with one of my daughters, um, either Friday night or Saturday, and I, I was just remarking how I. I always wait till the end whenever I'm preparing to preach. I do all the study, all the research, all the academic stuff that, that I need to do with the text as far as looking at the historical context, looking at the language, reminding myself who the author is, who the audience is, what was going on in the lives of the audience when they would have heard this, trying to get all those particulars in place so... Hopefully then as I study and I look at the words and look at the language and look at all those pieces, then I can come to the proper interpretation, the proper meaning of the text so I can then try to relay that to everyone else in the best way possible. That's kind of my process. But I always wait till the end to write the introduction. I do all the studying and then I wait till the end because I never know from week to week exactly how God is going to put all those pieces together for the last piece of the puzzle when it comes to teaching, and that is application. We, we go through observation of the text. We look at all these different um, markers, things that we're looking for in the words and the language and the context, and then we take all that observation and come to the interpretation of the text so we can see what it means. But then that last piece, application. If we don't have application, what have we really accomplished, right? Because what, what are you really asking yourself when you read the Bible and study the Bible and try to find out what does this mean? You're adding a couple words, right? You say, what does this mean for me? What do I do with this? I, it's nice to know this is what it means, but how does that affect my life? And so it's in that spirit that I end up coming to an introduction after all the study is done. And here's what the Lord gave me, and I, I really believe that. As I was writing this, I was just thanking God for, for showing this to me with regard to today's passage. You might look at the sermon title and think, hmm, help a brother out. What's that all about? What, what, what's really going to happen here today? Well, I want to just introduce the text by telling us all about the great double standard of Christianity. I know you may be wondering, well, I didn't think Christianity had double standards. Well, as a belief system in the Word, it doesn't. But when... When we sinners get a hold of it. Here's what we tell people all the time, especially those with whom we are sharing the gospel. 
There is no sin for which God cannot forgive you. Right? You can't run far enough in the wrong direction to outrun the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God Almighty. And to that I say, Amen. Ten thousand times, Amen. However, a strange thing happens once you become a blood-bought saint, a child of the living God. It seems like the Christian community has developed this really nasty habit of shooting their own wounded. You know what I mean by that? As soon as a believer has some setback or gives into some temptation or commits some sin that is deemed too terrible by self-appointed Pharisees, all of a sudden, God's forgiveness and love and mercy and grace are, are not all encompassing as they were previously advertised. Instead, we hear phrases like this. Did you hear what they did? I just can't believe they'd do something like that. I mean, I would never do anything that bad. Now, I understand that in every sin, there has to be repentance, conviction. I, I get that. I'm not trying to minimize those things because those are necessary. But it seems churches are far quicker to judge a brother or a sister rather than try to offer restoration and a path to forgiveness. And it may feel, this may feel right, or maybe even righteous, to respond that way. But it is biblically wrong. And all it takes to understand just how wrong it is to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's being judged or excluded or denied forgiveness. How quickly the people of God forget. 1 Peter 4.8 Love covers a multitude of sins. The Apostle Paul has gone to great lengths in this letter to demonstrate some things with the gospel as the backbone. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. There is no amount of good works you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. That's a work of the Spirit of God through the blood of Christ on the cross. That's the only way that happens. He's highlighted these truths in very clear fashion. And just last week we were in the last part of chapter 5 where we see that beautiful picture of the fruit of the Spirit, what it looks like to have Christ living in you and how that manifests itself in real life. What, what does the Christian look like? How do we tell the difference when we're going through life and we encounter different people and you know everybody's different and people act different ways and talk different ways and treat people different ways. But how do you distinguish the Christian in all this? And... Paul, the Bible was very clear last week. So then today, we get to chapter 6. 
And at the end, nearing the conclusion of this great letter, the Spirit speaks through Paul in a very direct way as it pertains to not how we are distinguished in the world. How do we treat each other? How do we love each other? How do we demonstrate, even within the family, that we really are in the family? The text will be on the screen for you to follow along. You can follow along in your own personal Bible. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Here's what the Holy Spirit gave Paul. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you will speak to our hearts clearly today and that you would give us the strength of obedience. And we need your help in order to accomplish this. So help us today, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This text almost takes a turn, right, from the, from the sense of of Paul's writing up to this point. He's, he's attacking a, a very particular false teaching and trying to demonstrate why that's not the case. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's not stacking up good deeds so that your good outweighs your bad. That's a, such a lie of the devil that the world at large seems to really adopt that principle. Well, I just live my life, you know, as long as i am got more good than i got bad, I'll, I'll be fine. That, that's a terrible lie. It's an eternally costly lie. So Paul gets to this point near the, the conclusion of the letter and you can almost sense the, um, the compassion or the love in the introduction of chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, brothers and sisters, almost, hey, lean in a little bit. Please listen to what I'm about to say. Now that we've settled this idea about Christianity and salvation and what it means to follow Jesus and how one is forgiven of their sins and, and all those uh, first order type of doctrine things, uh, the gospel in its purest sense. He now says, 
some things about relationships in the body. The first thing he touches on is bearing each other's burdens. We should bear each other's burdens. Verses 1 and 2. Right out of the, the gate on this paragraph, he says, Restore your sinning brother. And this is the first of many commands in this text, in this particular section. Restore your sinning brother. The, the Greek word that he uses here is really distinct. It's where we get our English word catharsis or cathartic. means healing. Okay, and, and specifically what he's getting at here, I, Paul is really good about painting these word pictures. You know, the words he uses give you an image in your mind. And so, specifically, the word he chose here or was given by the Spirit's guidance talks about resetting a broken bone to set it perfectly straight so it will heal completely and heal stronger than it was. And so, when you get this picture, you, you, have you ever broken a bone? Do you remember what that process is like? All that has to happen and how they, there's great uh, attention given to, alright, if we have to, we have to get this thing exactly lined up right so when it heals, it doesn't heal wrong, it's got to heal correctly. That's what Paul's getting at here. So, the spiritually mature that he references here in verse 1, you who are spiritual is supposed to set straight what has gone wrong. Literally, set it straight. The purpose in the life of the fallen Christian is healing. It's not uh, derision, it's not disgust, it's not contempt, it's not uh, pointing my finger at you, I can't believe you did that. Shame on you. And by the way, this is just a little side note that you'll see flowing through this text today. Every moment when we look at someone else's mistake and we have those thoughts and we're tempted to say, I just can't believe they did that. Well, really? Well, we should all take a, a moment and look at our own hearts and examine our own sinfulness and think, I, I'm not surprised a bit that, that someone would, would fall into something like that because, you know what? We... Yet for the grace of God, every one of us, every one of us, don't fool yourself into, I just can't believe they did believe it. That's how strong our sinful nature is. That's how powerful, and that should give us a greater appreciation for the blood of Jesus. That's how strong the sacrifice of Christ had to be to overcome the strength of the temptation to sin. So, so let's make sure we, we realize what's happening here. Restoration, healing in the life of the fallen Christian. Not gossip. Not contempt. What, what is supposed to happen? Restore, set straight what's wrong. Who is supposed to do this work? The, the more spiritually mature. See that in verse 1? You who are spiritual, restore such a one. But how? In a spirit of gentleness. And while you're doing this restoration, look at the warning in verse 1. Looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. See, e even in the act of restoration, 
the one doing the restoring, it could be tempted to sin. That's how strong the influence of sin can be. And so we have to constantly be on our guard. This idea of our default position should be restoration, not exclusion, not judgment. We should always be seeking to restore because what happens when we're the ones who need to be restored? Wouldn't we want the same grace and mercy and kindness and patience toward us? Right? John Stott, the great Christian scholar and pastor, he said about this particular verse, he said, if we obeyed this apostolic instruction as we should, much unkind gossip would be avoided. More serious backsliding would be prevented. The good of the church would be advanced. And the name of Christ would be glorified. And isn't that what we're after? We've got an entire Bible, 66 books of God's Word to us. And just obedience to this one verse would set the church free from so much. One verse out of the entire Bible. Restore your sinning brother. Bear your brother's burden and fulfill the law of Christ. There's two imperatives just in verse 2. And and I'll give you a little foreshadowing here. We're going to get to it in just a second. This is a different Greek word than Paul will use down in verse 5. Because a lot of times, uh, just to look ahead for just a moment, a lot of times we look at this and we think, wait a second. Right here he says, bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. Then in verse 5 he says, each one will bear his own load. Doesn't that seem opposite? Hang on, we'll get there. Just a minute. It's a different word. In verse 2, Paul's talking about something heavy that weighs a person down, a burden or a trouble. And see, then you just think back to the previous chapter, Galatians 5, verse 14, where Paul reminds the church, the whole law is fulfilled in this one thing, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which is an extension of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Bearing your brother's burden is serving them through love, which is exactly what Paul said to do in Galatians 5, verse 13 at the end. Bear each other's burdens. Number two, examine your own life. Examine your own life. This is another uh, command in the, in the Greek, uh, verses 3 through 5. There's two potential errors that can prevent the fulfillment of the law of Christ here because you see in the text it says... If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So you've got the, the tendency toward arrogance or pride. And so that could um, prevent the fulfillment of the law of Christ. If you think you're something when you're nothing, this self-deception, think, um, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Or also comparing yourself to other people. Comparing yourself. Look at verse 4. He says, each one must examine his neighbor's work. Right? Isn't that what it says? Y'all following along here? What does verse 4 say? Examine his own work. 
Right? In other words, don't be looking at your, at your classmates' paper. That's, that's their deal. They've got to be accountable for that. Don't be looking at their paper. Look at your own paper. You're not going to get their grade. You're going to get your grade. Right? So we could have arrogance or pride or be conceited or we could compare ourselves to others. And there's a positive case and a negative case there. You could be saying in the positive, well, I'm doing better than they are comparing to other people. Or the negative, I can't do anything right. Everybody's doing better than I am. Right? It's two, two different ends of the same spectrum. It's still a comparison to other people. When, when we realize in the family of God, in God's economy, each person has particular gifts for a particular role in God's kingdom. So when you see verse 4, each one must examine his own work. Then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. Did you know you are not accountable for how you use somebody else's gifts? Isn't that nice? And someone else is not accountable for how they use gifts you've been given. We are each accountable for how we use the gifts God has given us. I used to... <laughs> I still hear this in my mind. I used to hear a, a, an older preacher back in, in... This has been 25 years ago. Talking about spiritual gifts. Use it or lose it. Right? God might take that thing away from you if you just sit there and squander it and He's giving you a gift. You don't use it for His glory. You might just wake up and be gone one day. I don't know if that's biblical, but it sounds good, right? Everyone has particular gifts for a particular role in the kingdom. And every man will bear his own load. Now this is the the potential contrast we were talking about a moment ago. Verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 5 says, Each one will bear his own load. Two different Greek words. This term in verse 5 is more like a, uh, like a backpack, like a man's backpack, which basically teaches us this principle. We are each accountable to God for the gifts and tasks He gives us to do. We're not accountable for someone else's calling or gifts or tasks. When we stand before the Lord, He's not going to ask you about me. He's going to ask you about you. And, and by the way, I'll just speak for myself. i got way too much in my own life to worry about answering to God for uh, than worry about it, somebody else, you know what I'm saying? I don't need to be keeping a, a list of somebody else's sins so I can run to the teacher. Hey, God, look at this. Look what they did. And, and you know what he's going to say? He's going to pick that up at my hand and just drop it over here. Let's, let's talk about you. i got a list for you right here. Right? That ought to have us just pause a minute. <laughs> right? God's got the list for each one of us. Bear each other's burdens. Examine your own life. Last thing. Number three, use your resources wisely. Use your resources wisely. Now this is really interesting to me since I'm standing up here. Because this verse almost seems like it's just kind of stuck in there and not in the flow of things. But let me tell you uh, 
what it says and what it means and why it's there. What Paul seems to be saying here in verse 6, the one who's taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. It's literally a uh, command, another command. And, and so if you were to read it literally, it, would, it doesn't say is to share. It says he must share. So that's, what, is, what do you mean by that? When you look at the context and you see what's happening here, not only in this paragraph, but in the letter as a whole, Paul is reminding the churches to support the preacher. But let me just stop you before your mind wanders. Support the preacher and the preaching of the Word. Does that make sense? You understand the distinction of what I'm saying? Support the preacher. Now, does that mean support the preacher like pay the preacher? Okay, sure. But that's not, that's not all it means. It means support the preacher in his preaching of the Word. In other words, the church should be the biggest advocates for the truth of Scripture being preached and not something else. The people who are hearing the teaching should be the biggest uh, critical thinkers about what's coming out of the pulpit. And, and just understand, I have a conviction that God gave me that as far as I'm concerned, to my, the best of my ability under God, I will always only preach this Word and nothing else. But that may not be enough. Because I need accountability. I need someone else. I need all of you to be out there in the, in the pews with an open Bible, with a, an attentive mind and a focused heart to say, let's make sure this is the Word of God we're hearing. And how are you going to ever know if you're not engaged in the study and paying attention to the Word and listening for the Spirit? How are you ever going to know if what's coming out of the pulpit is from God or somebody's opinion? Maybe they heard something on the radio Saturday night and thought it would be good to share. How are you ever going to know? There's a, there's a, a word for this in the New Testament. In Acts. Specifically, be a good Berean. Look it up. We, we studied it. You might remember. Look it up. Berean. They were more honorable than the others because they they spent all their time testing what Paul said to determine whether or not these things were so. They didn't. Now Paul is the prince of preachers, right? Greatest missionary. You think he'd have some credibility? They didn't take his word for it. They opened the scriptures for themselves and said, let me be sure this is what God says. And just imagine the, the comfort and the confidence when that, yep, it's exactly what, this, what the word says. And, and that's, that's my hope and prayer that it will always be that way. I, I don't ever want to say something up here that didn't first come to me from in here. That, that is vital. That, that's a non-negotiable. Support the preacher and the preaching. The teacher invests in the people by sharing the Word of God. So those who are taught should invest in the teacher 
with financial support, spiritual encouragement, confirmation of the, the accurate dividing of the Word, as Paul would tell Timothy. Cut it straight. And, and let me just tell you what, what I've heard years and years and years ago. I can't even remember where. I know it's been a long time ago. A little cliche, little uh, funny statement that people would get a little chuckle out of in, in church context. The attitude of some, some churches toward their pastor. Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. Right? You ever heard that before? I didn't make it up. I, just, I remember hearing it. You know what that is? That's a word straight from hell. Straight from the devil himself to stop the preaching of the word. That's what that is. It sounds funny. But what it really is, let, let me see if I can distract men of the word enough to where they're so worried about other concerns that they can't concentrate and devote themselves to the clear preaching of the Word. That's what that looks like. And I, I praise God for this church almost daily because I, I'm, I am so well cared for. My family is cared for. I can, I can take this book, I can go in that office, and I can shut the door, and I can know... I can concentrate. I don't have to, to fret about all these other things, about what, what are, are we going to be able to, to pay the house payment this month? I don't have to worry about those things. And, and not everybody has that. I know some pastors... I don't want to lie here. Yeah, yeah they're... Um, they're within uh, within 20 miles of here. I know more than one who, for whatever reason, and, I, and I'm not about to judge someone else's position or their circumstances, but I, I do know more than one pastor not so far from here who does not have... Um, Stability is not free from weekly or monthly worries about whether or not he's going to be able to continue on in the ministry God's called him to because of other things. Many times, financial. And I know that the, I know that there are many other preachers who have to worry about those things. And, and I praise God that I don't. And I'm, I'm thankful. I'm very thankful. This is all coming out of uh, wise use of what God has given. God blesses churches, people, and then expects wise stewardship. 
Because then, this one verse, like I said, verse 6, I read it and I, why is that there? The very next thing Paul says has to do with deception. It's a passive imperative, which is odd in the, in the Greek language. What it means is, uh, when it says, don't be deceived, God will not be mocked. It's, it's almost as if Paul is saying, don't let this happen to you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. You can fool yourself, you can fool others, but you can't ever fool God. The results of poor sowing or planting are going to be seen sooner or later. So here's what the contrast looks like. When you get to verse 8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the flesh is mortal. It's one day going to pass away. The harvest of the flesh will also pass away. The Spirit, though, is eternal and will remain. So the spiritual harvest will also remain. In other words, what are we doing with everything God has given us? Are we careful to use all the things He gives us for ministry, for kingdom purposes, for evangelism, for missions, for um, benevolence, for, for um, helping other people hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and be saved and forgiven. Is that what we're doing with what God has given us? And, and I believe uh, it, no, one is, you know, no one is beyond examination and, and, and evaluation, so I'm sure, I haven't looked, I should have, that would have been nice if I had this thing in front of me and could look at it, but I'm sure there might be a couple little spots we could improve. Everybody could improve, right? Well, nobody's perfect, so I'm not pointing out something specific, but I'm just in general saying, I'm sure we could probably improve, but I feel like in most ways, many ways, we are being good stewards of all that God has blessed us with. I'm confident of that. But I don't think we should ever get comfortable. Right? We shouldn't ever just check that box and say, all right, we're doing, we're doing right, we're good, let's just coast a while, we're fine. God doesn't want us coasting <laughs> in any way. Right? He wants us pressing, pressing into the kingdom. So spiritual harvest remains. Uh, a flesh-centered harvest does not. And so then when he, he makes this statement about God not being mocked and don't deceive, uh, don't allow yourself to be deceived, then he says, don't lose enthusiasm for the Lord's work. Don't become weary. You know how when you start a race, uh, I remember years, a few years back, um, one of my children and I, um, she was a part of this program with the school about, uh, I think it was called Girls on the Run. And so it was where they would encourage, you know, you get out and jog and exercise and be active. And at the end of the semester, you would run a 5K together. And so we did that two or three times. And so, four times. Okay, so four times. So uh, I just remember, you know, Everybody is so excited when the little pistol starts the race, right? 5K, 3.1 miles. 
Um, clearly marked out course. Lots of people, fellowship, you know, so it's not like you're just out there struggling by yourself. But it, it's, it's always interesting when you look at people's facial expressions at the starting line and then you look at people's facial expressions at the finish line. It is not the same. Not even close. We passed, we were riding down the road in Lexington yesterday morning and there was the race against hunger right around Lexington High School down Highway 1 and around and so the police were everywhere cones set up and I actually made the comment we're riding down in the truck riding down the road and I'm looking I'm watching every single runner we pass and I said out loud look at those poor people look at their face they look miserable every one of them looks miserable I said we ought to pull over and offer them a ride and they were running the other way and they're just like you know, you see the looks on their faces. One guy who looked like a runner, you know, like he does it on purpose often. And he's running and he checks his watch like he's checking his pace and all that. I was like, yeah, okay. He's just doing that because all these cars are going by. He wants to look professional and everything. But he's really inside. He's just like dying. You know, like, well, why are you? I mean, nobody's chasing you. Get in a car. You know, you don't have to run. One of my friends from college actually got a... You know how people put the stickers on the car that says 13.1 or 26.2, I ran this many miles, whatever. He got a sticker, looks just like a little round sticker, white sticker, and in black numbers it says 0.0. And then under that it says, I don't run. <laughs> I like that. Don't lose enthusiasm. We start so happy, everything looks great. And then get into about mile one or two of that race, mile longer, five, six, you know, marathon, mile 17, mile 20. And that tests your resolve. Right. Do you really want this? Do, do you really want to see it through? Do you want to finish strong? Right? It's all how you finish, isn't it? Everybody can hear the, the starter pistol go off and look great, you know, especially when the TV cameras are at the starting line. You can just look like, yeah, I'm out here, I'm, I'm making it happen. And then you don't want to see the TV camera when you get to the finish line. Well, Paul says, don't get discouraged. Don't lose your enthusiasm. The race is worth it. The prize is worth it. So continue. Don't, don't lose heart in doing good, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up, if you don't grow weary, if you continue on, if you finish strong, if you reach the finish line with the same level of excitement and energy that you had when you started. Spiritually speaking, this is such a vivid image. I don't think I've ever met a person who just got saved that wasn't just thrilled. Maybe overcome with emotions just can't believe they're forgiven, can't believe Jesus loves them that much, but they're, they're generally excited and happy. But then they start living that daily life, facing that daily struggle, trying to live for Jesus. And then some years go by, and it's possible they're not as happy as they were. They, they, maybe they've forgotten the joy of their salvation. Paul says, don't, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Finish strong. You will reap a harvest 
if you don't give up, if you keep pressing. God has a time appointed for the harvest. And by the way, the interesting, interesting thing here, I want you to look at one word in verse 9 here before we finish up. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, look at this, we will reap if we do not grow weary. He just changed his pronouns to plural. You know what that means? He is personally identifying with the church. It's no longer I'm talking to you, telling you some things. We. It's inclusive. We will reap. He's including himself in this exhortation as if he's saying, I need to remember this too. I need to not lose heart. I need to not grow weary. I need to press on and finish strong. Because I want to reap the harvest too. Jimmy Draper wrote a book a couple years ago. Great, greatest title of a book I've heard in a while. Uh, Jimmy Draper is a longtime Southern Baptist Convention guy. He's been in lots of leadership positions. The title of his book is Don't Quit Before You Finish. I love that. Don't quit before you finish. Well, near the end of his book, he writes these words. When face to face with overwhelming and offensive opposition, Jesus refused to quit His calling. With His life on the line and His time literally ticking away, Jesus refused to quit. He stayed the course. He suffered the cross. He bought our salvation. If He could endure these unspeakable betrayals, then surely we can face the challenges that come our way without quitting. He is our perfect example. And with this as our focus, we can continue. Just a, a last word about this text today. Verse 10 kind of concludes this particular thought before he gets to his final um, closing greeting. He says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially those who are the household of the faith. <clears throat> we support the household of the faith, but we eventually support everybody. We, we do good. We try to do good to everybody. I found an article from 2019 that was published by uh, CDF Capital that had some statistics about church giving and generosity and things like that. And it was a long study. I won't, won't bore you with all of it. But just a couple of things that stood out to me. According to their research, only 5% of church attenders actually tithe. 5%. At the writing of this article, 2019, 247 million Americans identify as Christian, but only 1.5 million tithe. Religious giving has fallen 50% since 1990. And this might have been the most sobering one of all. And I said, this many people say they're Christian, this many people tithe. According to their calculations, if Christians tithe, there would be an additional 
$165 billion for ministry, for missionaries, for taking the gospel to the world, for serving communities, planting churches. $165 billion. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And He owns the hills too. And every bit of resource the church needs to do every last thing God has called the church to do is already in the church. The only problem is it's in our pockets. And sometimes it's hard to part with it. Maybe we just hadn't got to the point where we really do believe what God says, that He's going to do everything He said He's going to do. So we had the opportunity to invest in the kingdom. Whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. So all this to say, it's pretty simple when you really just boil it, boil it down. Bear each other's burdens. Examine your own life. Use your resources wisely. Follow the example of Jesus. In other words, read the Bible. Do what it says. And as you begin to read Scripture, you'll find that the first order of business is to surrender everything to Jesus. And that starts with our hearts. That, that's, what, that's what God wants. I say this all the time and I'm not joking. God doesn't need anything we have. But He wants our hearts. this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.